put that tree away. It won't be Christmas for a long time. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and each episode I'll be saying words out my mouth in the hope that those words will interact with the words in your head and make the words that come out on your page better than the ones currently coming out on your page, so that when someone reads those words, the words in their head will be good words like, wow, and holy fuck, this rocks, and not bad words like, I feel so cheated right now, and what is this, I can't even. Ugh, I've been feeling really grim recently. Grim in my heart and grim in my head. Partly because of the state of the world, partly because I've been working on the same novel for two years and in a maximum of four weeks I'll be a dad and so basically I have four weeks to get it finished before, you know, sprog again. Which, obviously I'm happy that I've got a daughter on the way, but it comes with responsibilities, doesn't it? And, and look, fear is the antithesis of creativity. Every time you worry about whether you've got this sentence exactly right or you try to motivate yourself by saying time's running out, oof, the beautiful, imaginative part of you just closes down. Quite sensibly. The world is full of pain and traps. I hear you, says the subconscious. Let's minimise risk. I'll stop producing ideas because when we produce ideas, a lot of them will be bad. I'd love to do a bunch of interviews with authors about writing their second novel. And in fact, I might try and arrange that because difficult second novel is a cliche, right? But there's a reason that cliche exists. And if you're anything like I was before I wrote my first, you're probably thinking, well, that would be a nice problem to have. Let's focus on cranking the first one out. I'll worry about the second one later. But I think we save ourselves a lot of heartache if we realise that novel writing has no end point, no magic moment where you become an author and suddenly you can just knock stuff out. Indeed, if you're able to churn out novels on deadline over and over, you're probably writing to a formula, which is fine. You're allowed, but you've never actually progressed to the second novel. You're just rewriting the first one 20 times and you may find a bunch of readers who like that too. They never have to risk reading something different. Woohoo! It's particularly difficult for me because I struggle so badly with anxiety and, and so I just want to repeat what I've said before. Seriously, any of you listening who want to get a novel out there, sit down, do it. Just get on with it. Seriously, like if I can manage it, anyone can. You definitely can. I'm so constitutionally unsuited to this. Yeah, I've managed to publish three books and I've written a novel that wasn't shit. Just start. Write your first page. Pick away at it. Seriously, I promise you, as long as you don't stop, you'll get there. Ugh. That was a, a weirdly depressing pep talk, wasn't it? Look, should we just get on with it? If you'd like to submit your work to the show, there's details at the end. This week's extract is by Jim, and it's called Murder in the Lake District. I woke up, leapt out of bed and clambered over to the bathroom to brush my teeth. I saturated the bristles with a thick blue, jelly-like liquid, ran the tap and began to brush. As I looked into the mirror, I noticed that something had gone awry. My teeth had thinned, multiplied, turned yellow, inverted, sharpened and curled in my mouth. Bloody hell, I muttered as I stared into my own blank eyes. Then I heard knocking at the front door, which quickly turned into banging. I rushed down to the door in a panic and opened it immediately to discover my father, gazing at me disappointingly, while rain showered him on the doorstep. The rain was matte white milk, and it was streaming down the road by the gutter. It was at this point that I realised I must have forgotten to put on my clothes and was fully naked. My father, arrested on my doorstep like a rusty statue, gazed at me as if he hadn't seen me for years and what he saw now he had a lot of concern for. 
All I could do was look back at him and gesticulate, spreading my hands around and jabbing like a praying mantis. This attempt at communication continued ad nauseum for what seemed like a period of time equivalent to the remainder of my adult life. All of a sudden, I registered another presence. A figure began to walk past on the opposite side of the street wearing a full navy pinstripe suit, crooning gently to himself. And here are my cuts. Hi Jim, thank you for your submission. Every first page, every first sentence is making the reader an offer. It does other things as well, but the offer paradigm is a good way of thinking about it, especially when you come to the redrafting phase. We're all temporarily sentient aggregations of meat doomed to rot down into the earth from whence we sprung. Human consciousness does not survive death and we only get one shot at life. Given this, why should someone invest a portion of their finite existence reading your book, or indeed any book? And the offer in that first page, in that first line, is the point where you go... Here's why. Here's why this is worth your time, oh delicate mortal. Here's where I tell you something you didn't know before. Here's where I take you somewhere you've never been before. I just finished The Palm Wine Drinker by Amos Tutuola. I really enjoyed it. Here's the first line. I was a palm wine drinker since I was a boy of 10 years of age. That's cool, right? It's interesting. It's such an odd, arresting thing to say. Really blunt. It doesn't apologise for itself. It just throws us right in there with this narrator. There's no holding back. There's no easing us into the world. It's like, right, here's the story. Here's me. Let's go. So with all that in mind, let's look at your first sentence again and ask ourselves, what offer are you making to the reader? I woke up, leapt out of bed and clambered over to the bathroom to brush my teeth. Are you taking us somewhere we've never been before? No. Are you introducing us to a powerful original narrator? Not yet. Is there peril or tension or mystery? No. Someone wakes up and brushes their teeth. In between there's some housekeeping text where they tell us they exited the bed and moved to the bathroom. But to be bruisingly frank, Jim, I suspect we could have deduced both those things. The only hook here really is who leaps out of bed and immediately brushes their teeth before having breakfast? Surely the teeth brushing comes afterwards. I'm sure I'm going to get a series of emails now from people saying, well, actually, I brush my teeth before and after breakfast. But you're weird, right? How can you have orange juice for breakfast having brushed your teeth? But look, I'd like to believe, Jim, that you can do better than that fairly insipid plot hook. I, I, I am sorry, but I just do not think a strong bid for an opening of a book is small discrepancies in someone's dental hygiene. I saturated the bristles with a thick blue jelly-like liquid, ran the tap and began to brush. So here, your narrator is explaining to us what toothbrushing is, as if they were operating an antimatter beam in a science fiction novel. A thick blue jelly-like liquid uses six words rather than the conventional term toothpaste. Now, I like crunchy specificity as much as the next guy, indeed considerably more than the next guy, unless the next guy is just a weird clone of me. But if your novel starts to sound like a tedious party game you play with your family at Christmas, you've gone too far. I donned the brown leather sheathed-like foot coverings. Ooh, ooh, I know, shoes! Now, I know having read on that you're setting up this normality as a contrast to your sudden swing into bizarro world. The problem is, these sentences don't achieve anything on their own. That might not sound like it matters. Two dead sentences. Who cares? But they're your first two. They're the key plank of your offer. 
You don't make that offer more attractive by deliberately lowballing your opening to make later sentences seem more exciting. That's like proposing to someone by asking them to close their eyes, doing a wet fart into that open palm, then producing a bouquet and saying, will you marry me? The flowers don't seem more romantic because you've contrasted them with a guff. Trust me. Wrong-footing the reader is great, but don't do it by pretending you're a shit or lazy writer because they might believe you. The wonderful thing about the palm wine drinker is just how unapologetic it is for being fantasy. It's like, okay, now an army of dead babies came down the road and started beating us with sticks. Now we got captured by a family of skulls. There's no, I wiped my bum and watched Poirot to throw it into stark relief. As I looked into the mirror, I noticed that something had gone awry. I'm guessing this is supposed to be comic understatement, which is good in the sense that it reveals character. In fact, broadly speaking, this is a dream sequence, right? There are lots of disconnected, weird images. There's a bit of nakedness to which the narrator has no particular emotional response to. They don't seem to register it as particularly strange, which is okay, but super tough as an opening bid. Remember that idea of an offer? You know, the saying, share a dream, lose a friend. Well, the fiction equivalent is share a dream, lose a reader, because dreams by their nature have zero stakes. It's one of the moments where the reader's willing suspension of disbelief is most likely to collapse, because it just heightens the fact that it's fiction. We know that another human being wrote this down and is bullshitting us. And when the tension drops away, when we're not pulled on by that that little agony inside of wanting to know what happens next because we know it's a dream sequence it makes us weirdly aware of the fact that it's just fiction and it's all bollocks right it starts to break open the very device that is keeping the reader in the book and it's just like the author is stacking some arbitrary images on top of one another that we know won't contribute to the ongoing plot unless of course They do, which is kind of worse. Like prophetic dreams in fantasy or or deeply symbolic dreams in literary fiction that pull out the major tropes and relationships like a metaphor pumped full of growth hormones and force-fed through a tube. Those are really shit. They're absolutely toe-curlingly bad. Actually, the one genre you can probably get away with dream sequences is comic fiction, which this may or may not be, because the stakes are often quite low to begin with in comic fiction. But even then... It's probably a one-shot set piece rather than a technique you can sustain for more than a couple of pages. Opening with a dream sequence doesn't throw us into this wacky, disorienting world. We just get a few lines in and go, oh, it's a dream. And our investment immediately flaps away like a Zubat, uncaught, grinning with its stupid little eyeless face. Yes, I was writing Pokemon Go while making my notes for this. My teeth had thinned, multiplied, turned yellow, inverted, sharpened and curled in my mouth. Listeners won't be able to see it, but the sentence ends with an exclamation mark, hence my slightly dickish read of it. I'm I'm, I'm tempted to put a blanket ban on exclamation marks in the narrative. I I believe it was Terry Pratchett who called an access of exclamation marks the sign of a diseased mind. Uh, They do more harm than good, and they're hard to use judiciously. Maybe we should just limit the people's freedom for their own protection, except that you know as well as I do that every rule can be broken. The palm wine drinker breaks rules of grammar, of logic, of solving plot problems, and it's brilliant. Just, I can't really explain it. I do recommend that you go out and read it, but it's just so amazingly confident, and and it just owns its choices, and it's relentlessly inventive and funny. 
There are a few reasons you might use an exclamation mark outside of dialogue. For example, a short emotive exclamation by the narrator. Ah, the indignity of it. An exclamation mark isn't strictly speaking needed in that instance, but it's not disruptive either. It, it feels normal. To try and make a dramatic moment seem extra dramatic is not a good reason. However, it's hokey, cheap and suggests a lack of faith in your material. Either the line is dramatic, in which case it doesn't need the heavy-handed stage direction of an exclamation mark sitting on the end, or it's not, in which case a chipper little exclamation mark hanging on the end can't save it, can it? There are too many adjectives in the sentence as well. I mean, technically they're verbs, but you're using them as adjectival clauses, right? Thinned, multiplied, turned yellow, inverted, sharpened, curled. And what do you mean by inverted? The root is sticking out and the tooth is in the gum? Or is it just a worse, less accurate way of saying curled? And why end the sentence with in my mouth, the least interesting, most obvious piece of information? Where else would the teeth be? In their ass? Actually... Actually, no, that would be super great, Jim. Imagine the first line. I woke after a night of uneasy dreams to discover my arse had grown fangs. That's a novel I would keep reading. Pick your battles. Two adjectives to a noun max. Maybe once a novel you can go three if they're really well chosen and you've got no other option. Otherwise, all your beautiful adjectives start cancelling each other out in the reader's mind. Bloody hell. I muttered as I stared into my own blank eyes. Right, either you're committing to this as a scene or you're not. Imagine having a mouthful of twisted yellow fangs. You'd immediately feel them in your mouth. But let's say this is a dream and they didn't appear until the narrator looks in the mirror. You wouldn't be able to say bloody hell because B is a bilabial consonant and requires both lips to close and then push. Bloody hell, bloody hell. With teeth that are longer, twistier and sharper than usual, you can't make a proper... Your bite radius is all fucked up, Jim. That movement isn't possible. You'd be saying, bloody hell, bloody hell. It doesn't work. And look, it's fine to go surreal, but you have to respect a scene's internal logic. I can accept spontaneous fang growth, but I can't accept lips that exist outside the usual laws of matter and can phase in and out of physical existence to aid pronunciation. I don't understand what the narrator means by blank either. Why are their eyes blank? They're staring in shock, aren't they? It's a confusing negative choice of adjective. Then I heard a knocking at the front door, which quickly turned into banging. No need to start a sentence with then. We understand that sentences come in chronological order. We know that this is after. And avoid adverbs wherever possible. Quickly here doesn't add anything. I heard knocking at the front door it turned into banging. That conveys quickness because it happens quickly. It happens, in fact, immediately afterwards. You don't need to step in to explain that the thing we just saw happen quickly happened quickly. Show. Don't tell. I rushed down to the door in a panic and opened it immediately to discover my father gazing at me disappointingly while rain showered him on the doorstep. It's not clear here why the narrator is panicked. If they're worried about their teeth, surely they wouldn't answer the door. I know in dreams people have inappropriate or odd emotional reactions, but this just feels inconsistent and poorly thought through. Again, opened it immediately is a wasted adverb. If you describe them opening it straight after the previous action, we can see that's immediate. You don't need to step in. Uh, you don't need to intrude like a Greek chorus as uh, Henry Green had it to underline your meaning. Oh, and, and, and there's a worse adverb in this sentence. My father gazing at me disappointingly. I think you mean 
gazing at me with disappointment. But phrased this way, it sounds like the narrator's father is subpar at gazing. To be honest, I expected a stern paternal gaze from my father, but instead he only managed a sort of boss-eyed leer. Remember that rule about putting the most interesting word at the end of the sentence. Doorstep is a boring and unsurprising word. And it's just logically obvious as well. Of course the doorstep is on the other side of the door. You don't need to tell us his location. We get it from context. This attempt at communication continued ad nauseum for what seemed like a period of time, equivalent to the remainder of my adult life. Right. For a start, ad nauseum means to the point of sickness. It's not a synonym for something taking a long time. Yes, this communication is frustrating, but it's not vomit-inducing. Secondly, you don't need to say ad nauseum and then for what seemed like a period of time equivalent to the remainder of my adult life. You're just saying a similar but subtly distinct thing twice and the two things you're saying conflict. Three, a period of time equivalent to the remainder of my adult life is a horrible, horrible synonym for years. Clunky, banal, long, and yet somehow really vague. And also, I don't believe you. I don't believe someone can perceive decades of time in a dream. It's just an annoying exaggeration. Look, Jim, my dear friend, thank you so much for submitting this and well done for working on your writing. I love surreal fiction and this is a really exciting, fun piece. You've obviously put a lot of love into it, but surreal fiction is probably the hardest genre to do well because the rules are so loose. What aims to be a pyrotechnic parade of imagination often ends up feeling like a rambling Grandpa Simpson anecdote. Just random pointless image after random pointless image. Oh, can you handle it? A man with an octopus face. Well, Yes, we can. It's actually a lot less challenging than, say, human suffering or death. It's less funny, too. Comedy is truth. I think this is too early to do a dream sequence. Well, unless it was spectacularly good. I don't want to limit your ambition or advocate the path of least resistance, but there's no shame in giving the reader some good old-fashioned stakes in a comprehensible universe. And don't be afraid to keep your language simple. There's so much fuss here, so many things that you use eight words to say something that you could do with three. Single clauses, Jim. Blunt images. Don't overcook it. Good luck with your rewrites. And that's it. If you'd like to submit your own work for the podcast, please go to my website, timclepo.co.uk and click the link in the show notes to read the submission guide. If you'd like to support me, buy my novel, The Honours. That's The Honours. It's published by Canongate. You can get it online. You can get it in shops. You could go into a bricks and mortar store, not just to get the Pokemon that happen to be hanging out outside. Oh, I'm going to go and visit an independent bookshop now because it's a poker stop. You fucking animal. What's wrong with... No, I love... No, I've been doing that. It's great. Po Pokemon Go is the best thing that's happened in the last two months, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Anyone out there who's like all sneery about Pokemon Go, oh, these people are following the Pied Piper Pikachu through the, these, the children on their phones. Fuck you. You're so boring. What's wrong with you? It's great. People are outdoors. People are meeting new people. People are uh, seeing historical sites they didn't know were there. I've been going exploring the blue packs, plaques of Norwich while I catch drowsies. It's great and wonderful. It's a magnificent, glorious thing. And um, maybe they're using it to... Uh, maybe this is the first phase in a sinister global surveillance scam... But, God, if I mean, if the police state is going to come in, I'm so glad that the 
that the attack vector was Pokemon. That's just it. It, it softens the blow. It sugars the it sugars the pill of the hellish dystopia we're sliding into. That they did it with Pokemon. Anyway, look. I hope you're well. Look after yourself. Until next time, be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes.